Hello and welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich, conversations with creative people from the arts and beyond. Before the introduction of today's wonderful guest, how do you get in touch? Our website is chartproductions.com. That's where you'll find the podcast and a whole lot more about what I do during the day here in the studio. You can email me, jordan at chart, like a map, chartproductions.com, Jordan Rich Show on Facebook, and on Twitter, it's at JordanWBZ. He is one of America's premier storytellers, a modern-era Mark Twain or Will Rogers, someone whose voice is so familiar and welcomed by millions. Today's guest is Garrison Keillor, best known as the creator of the incredibly popular Prairie Home Companion on Minnesota Public Radio and heard throughout the world. He hosted it from 1974 to 2016. He's written several books, the setting of many, of course, Lake Wobegon. And we will talk about this man's prolific writing. Check out TWA, the Writer's Almanac, on his website, garrisonkeeler.com. The man who put powder milk biscuits on the map and brought storytelling humor and the magic of audio to a new level. Garrison Keeler, let's go on, Mike. Well, I've got a question for the man who is certainly the renaissance man of our day. What are you, if somebody asks, are you a writer first? Are you a radio storyteller? How do you describe Garrison Keillor in one or two words? Well, being a radio guy depends on other people. And um, so I call myself a writer. I wanted to be a writer uh, when I was 13 years old and uh, an English teacher at Anoka High School in Anoka, Minnesota, handed me a copy of the New Yorker magazine, of all things, and uh, and said, I thought this might interest you. And I read it, and here was A.J. Liebling, Abbott Joseph Liebling, uh, New York Jewish, wrote about Paris, wrote about food, wrote about boxing, wrote about World War II. And I was fascinated by him. I never met anybody like A.J. Liebling. And uh, so that's what I wanted to be. Um, of course, there could only be one of him, so I had to find my own way. But um, writing is something that you can do any place. You can do it on a bus. You can do it, uh, you know, sitting at your desk. And... Um, it's what I still do every every day. I just finished uh, working on a, editing a manuscript of a memoir. So that's what I'm in the middle of. And if I may say, I've uh, become a fan of, not the airline, TWA, the Writer's Almanac, which is <laughs> you turning out a treasure trove of stuff. Man, you, you must be writing a lot. It's daily, right? It is. It is. But it's only, you know, it's only five minutes and I only write about three minutes of it. So it's no big deal. <laughs> uh, no big deal. But uh, that goes along with all the other stuff that's in the catalog. Before we get too far along, and I want to talk to you about the radio thing. You're working on a book now, I'm told. Being from New England, where Nantucket is not far off the, the coastline. <laughs> is this true? A limerick book, the ultimate limerick book, Garrison? There was an old man of Nantucket who died. He just kicked the bucket. <laughs> and when he was dead, we found that instead of Nantucket, he came from Braintree. <laughs> oh, 
not that I would have to bleep you, but uh, I'm glad I didn't even have to think about it. So it, that's yeah, what you're yeah. working on now, soon to be published or what? No, I'm all done with that. I'm all done with that. I uh, got fascinated by the limerick when I was a kid and I went to the library and there was um, an unexpurgated uh, Gershon Legman edition of limericks. And reading dirty limericks when you are brought up fundamentalist uh, evangelical <laughs> is, um, is it just blows your mind. It's just, it's incredible. It takes, you know, it takes a young Christian evangelical to really appreciate a dirty limerick. And um, I'm trying to think of one I could recite that uh, uh, that you could use. Um, 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 uh, there was a young girl of Madras who had a remarkable ass, not soft, round, and pink, as you probably think, but the kind with long ears that eat scratch. Ah, oh, perfect. <laughs> and uh, I, I, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And so I've been writing them ever since. It's the perfect thing to, you know, to write to a friend on their birthday. I sit on a plane flying out to New York, and, you know, it's a little crowded and the person on your right is leaning against you and uh, and but you can always sit and you can always sit and write a limerick and over my lifetime I have written a few darned good limericks so I put them into a book it's great and, uh, great and but by the way one can really learn about geography when one studies limericks because <laughs> everybody is somewhere from somewhere <laughs> There was a man or a woman or a girl from somewhere. Speaking of writing, the writing you've done over the years for the radio shows has just been so cool. And I'm a big fan, as you probably are, too, of the golden age, they say in quotes, of radio, the the scripted shows and whether they were dramas or comedies. And there were some outstanding writers back then. There were some not so good ones, too. But was that an influence on you when you started The Prairie Show? Well, we listened uh, to radio when I was a kid growing up because um, we were fundamentalists and we did not get a TV because, you know, it showed movies and movies are Hollywood and, and, and we were averse to that. So I listened to radio as the golden age was ending and, uh, and, and it was still... It was still good. Uh, Fiddler McGee and Molly were still there. I forget their writer's name, Paul, somebody, and um, and he was and he was terrific for writing kind of low key uh, domestic uh, comedy. Um, the horror shows uh, didn't appeal to me as much, although horror is much scarier on radio than. Yes. Uh, is on TV, um, but but I Jack Benny stuck with radio till till the very end. I think Bob Hope was still was still doing it. I loved all of these shows, The Great Gildersleeve, and uh, and uh, so that's what I that's what I grew up with, you know. And um, mm. when I when I decided to try to make a Saturday 
evening show on public radio. I'd just been down to Nashville. I'd seen the Grand Ole Opry, and I wanted to do something like that with musicians. But I wanted to also bring in uh, comedy sketches, uh, scripted sketches. And so and so I did over the years. I uh, invented Guy Noir, oh. Radio Private Eye, and, uh, you know, a dark night in a city that knows how to keep its secrets. But one man is still trying to find the answers to life's, uh, life's uh, something, something questions. Um, <laughs> oh, I love Guy Noir. You know, as you say this, I'm thinking of Foley artists or sound effects men. You actually employed human being sound effects machines, which took it to the next level. I, I always love that. That's really, I think that was my distinction in public radio uh, was that I had this guy, he started out as an engineer, he was a former Marine, Tom Keith, and uh, and he was a pretty good center fielder, but he could do amazing loons, he could do talking dogs, he could uh, do feral cats, all kinds of firearms he could do, and vocally, just everything was, everything was vocal, and so I, he was mixing the show, and I brought him up on stage, and uh, mm. and and this um, this turned into something surrealistic. I I simply wrote simple narrative for myself that would employ uh, his sound effects, and so you could do a story in which the Chinese sent an ICBM over the uh, Pacific, but uh, mating dolphins off Oahu uh, emitted uh, high-piercing cries, which threw off the, the uh, guidance system. And so <laughs> it didn't land in Los Angeles. It landed in, uh, in um, Aspen, Colorado, in an Aspen forest where Boy Scouts were around the campfire and, and where loons were singing Kumbaya and, uh, and the scoutmaster lit an exploding cigar and, uh, and, and set off Aspen gases. <laughs> and uh, you could just go on and on yeah. like that. And, and it, was, it, it was a sort of comedy that nobody else did. He um, he didn't want to tour anymore, Tom Keith, and so then we brought in Fred Newman from New York, and and he became our main guy. Fred, who did amazing intestinal sounds, uh, gagging. Fred could gag <laughs> in a way that made millions of people step away from their radios. Uh, I don't know what people are using headphones. <laughs> What? But it was unbelievable, and and he and he uh, he could he could do flatulence. See, that's something you don't see on a resume every day, Garrison. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he, could, he could make flatulence talk. I mean, it, it was uh, it was incredible. So my job was really was very simple. But but this is my distinction. Um, you didn't ask me, but I'll tell you anyway. Please. Uh, my distinction is that I brought juvenile comedy to public radio. 
and and I was the only one. The car talk guys did their best, right? But uh, but Tom and Ray did not do flatulence. And I did. <laughs> no, we're talking with Garrison Keeler, of course. Uh, the voice alone is enough to let you know who it is. And that brings me to a very, very burning question that I'm sure you've gotten over the years from a few others. I was listening to you in the 70s, but before all the internet stuff and search engines, I was frustrated, as others probably were, not knowing who the hell you were. I knew you were this guy with this amazing voice, singing songs, selling biscuits, but you never mentioned your name. Others on the show would occasionally say, well, thank you, Garrison. But it took a long time for many of us out here in the sticks to find out who the hell you really are. You're very humble, I realize that, but please explain. No, it wasn't humility. Uh, It's that I was the announcer, and uh, also I was the host. And I just couldn't imagine myself saying, this is Garrison Keeler. I, I just, uh, it just seemed so, it just seemed so awkward. Hmm. The, the other thing, um, which, which played a small role in it was the fact that uh, back about, um, <laughs> see, show started 74, uh, went national in 80, um, back around 60, I had sent a letter to my draft board uh, who had ordered me to report for induction into the Army, and I had sent them a long letter saying that I would not uh, report for this, that, and the other reason. And I waited for the FBI to come and collect me without any idea of what I would do if they did. Mm. And they never did. They just simply never did. I was expecting them for years. And so that played a part in it. I, <laughs> I, I, Who's that knocking on your door right now? No, 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 no. Yeah, no. I, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want That's the funny. FBI to be listening to radio and think, oh, oh there he is. <laughs> That's and, great. Uh, <laughs> I love I love that. You know, one of the things that always impressed me as as a fellow radio person is the sense of intimacy and connection that you had when you would take the correspondence from the audience and just with a beautiful jazz background or pianist behind you just read the notes from people to people that was my favorite part of every show can you talk a little bit about that sense of intimacy that you might have felt well touring was important uh to us and doing the show in front of a live audience was part of the idea at the, at the very beginning. Uh, it also saves you a lot of time and trouble editing, and, uh, and, and that was part of our choice. Um, so I, I, wanted to, I wanted the listener at home to, to know that, that it was live and that, and that we were doing this in front of an audience, and we were in... Worthington, Minnesota, or Pierre, South Dakota, wherever we were, and 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 I wanted to acknowledge um, I wanted to acknowledge the audience and, uh, and 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 not to get too not to get too high toned, which was a problem in public radio back then. Public radio was was trying too hard. I don't know to be like the BBC and. Mm. Um, and uh, 
I mean, they did good things, but still. Uh, so part of the idea from the very beginning was to acknowledge individuals, their birthdays, their anniversaries, and uh, say hello to people, and also to invent sponsors so that we could, mm. you know, talk about uh, bunions <laughs> and bad breath and, and talk about laundry and, and cars and the ordinary thing. Yeah, but the people themselves, you were hysterical oftentimes just reading their words. It, it's so interesting how funny regular folk can be when, when they want to be. Maybe they don't even mean to be. I don't remember it that way. I remember it, uh, uh, from my point of view, standing with tiny slips of paper and thinking to myself, you know, they don't teach uh, penmanship in schools anymore. <laughs> I know. You didn't have some kid uh, scrolling on a computer screen for you. You had to read the slips. Yeah, I guess that could be a little challenging. Speaking of the show, the guest stars and the celebrities, uh, some of whom were, wow, just coming up and becoming superstars. I remember when you had Bobby McFerrin on for the first time. It was the first time I had heard him. I was just blown away. You did have a lot of folks who joined you over the years of some note. There were some great people. The people I loved uh, the most, I must say, were the singers. And uh, and there was some soulful uh, singing that went that went on. That's why we did bluegrass. I'm, I'm not all that fond of the banjo, but, uh, but we did bluegrass because people like Ricky Skaggs would, uh, would come on. He just had a haunting voice. Hazel Dickens from West Virginia, I can't forget her name, and Jean Redpath of, of Scotland, Renee Fleming. There were, mm. there were these gorgeous people who were so modest and who were so polite and decent, and then they, they would sing from their heels. They really put it out there, and, and, they, and they gave people this uh, powerful this powerful feeling hazel dickens could make you feel that that you were out there in the middle of a whole bunch of small dirt farmers and uh, hmm. and she was telling their story um, i'm not i'm not big on instrumental virtuosity i mean other people are god bless them but it's it's the singers i think who um, who, who really have uh, the Spirit of God. And music is such a big part of Prairie Home Companion and a big part of your stage show. Everyone loves the song parodies and the song takeoffs. I wrote parodies. I loved writing parodies because the music of my generation uh, uh, requires parody. Um, my generation was a very... Uh, self-important, the music of the 70s, Bob Dylan, uh, Simon Garfunkel, it was, was uh, you know, these, these people had a, um, had a high sense of mission and they needed to be brought down. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, I never, I never cared for them. And, um, and, so, I, and so I did uh, parodies. We parodied... Um, uh, sound of silence, um, but making it sounds of sickness, <laughs> and uh, and Fred Newman was uh, was involved, and uh, 
he did a lot of um, intestinal uh, difficulty. Yeah, uh, adding flatulence to any song is just, in my opinion, spices the whole thing up. I mean, oh yeah, <laughs> doesn't get much better. Which begs the question: Over the years, was there was there a lot or any influence uh, on the part of the the suits from NPR? Did you have to do what we all in radio have to do at some point or another: sit in front of the program director and explain yourself, or what? I never did. Um, Bill Kling was my boss. He hired me back in 1969, and um, and I operated with a with a with a free hand. He was a a guy who um, who did not trust um, consultants. He didn't have any vice presidents. Um, there were no staff meetings, um, at least not in the early days. And then in the uh, he, he was the guy who who wanted the show to go national, and he fought for um, a system of radio uplinks for for regional radio stations, and he got it from uh, from PBS, and uh, and and so he was he was a a real cheerleader, and then in the early eighties, I would say about eighty two or three. Um, they started putting out products. Um, they put out a powder milk biscuit poster. They put out uh, coffee mugs. They put out um, uh, joke books, all, all t-shirts, everything. Mm. And they got into the uh, in, in, into um, you know for for for, for profit retail merchandising. And, and we earned so much money for Minnesota Public Radio that uh, you know they they were they were not going to interfere with anything we did. <laughs> It's a great story. I mean, I remember when those products, the merch as we call it, hit the shelves and it was flying off the shelves. In fact, somewhere I have a, a coffee mug in my collection uh, that's part of the Prairie Home Companion thing. Let me just get back to the writing for a sec because uh, I don't want to hold you up, but the writing has been such an important part of your life and for readers, we're very happy about that. Isn't now a great time to be a writer because there are so many options? You don't have to just get the publisher uh, of the week to publish your stuff. You can self-publish. You can, you can do digital publishing. There's so many options. Uh, are you in agreement with me that there is a, a good dose of opportunity for writers? Oh, I'm sure that's true. Um, but I'm too old uh, to um, to really know anything about that. I have um, I have a, a, a great assistant, uh, Catherine, who's 27, and she knows much more than I. But I'm still a print guy, and uh, and that's really and that's really what I care about. I had in the August um, issue of Harper's, I had an essay, and I was so thrilled uh, to to see it on on paper. Mm. I I uh, I'm going to publish this Limerick book myself. Actually, Catherine is, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, I still, I still have an agent, Marley. You know, who's uh, out there trying to, trying to uh, interest the publisher in in my memoirs. So we'll see how that, how that goes. 
Garrison Keillor, I think of you as one of the funniest people on the planet, and satire and spoofing has always been one of your fortes. Is it more tricky, more difficult, more challenging now in this political climate to do that kind of humor? And are you still thinking about doing it when you get out on the road? I've sort of given up on satire, I think, uh, because I just don't see that it has done what satire ought to ought to do. Satire has real power. It has power to to change things. And I think that ridicule is is a powerful force in politics any anywhere. Um, there's so many um, shabby people who've been laughed off the stage, but it's not working today, as you can tell, um, anytime you pick up a newspaper. And so I've, I've kind of changed my tune. Um, I think the late night guys on television are doing the best they can, um, and I. I, d- I don't uh, bother with it anymore. Um, I am, I've switched to the other side, and now at the age of 77, I am about gratitude. And um, I, will, I can leave politics to people in their 20s and 30s, and, and they can use rougher language than I can. <laughs> <laughs> and I am... I am about gratitude. I think that uh, I think that we live in a great country and we have a chance to do beautiful things. And if life is this good at the age of seventy-seven, I want people to know about it so they have something to look forward to. What a great message! Have, uh, what a wonderful I've message! Been, I've been spared a lot of a lot of things. Um, I've been spared depression. I've been spared uh, alcoholism, although I gave it a a good shot, you know, back <laughs> years ago. I tried, and um, and and I still I still love to sit down with a pen and a yellow legal pad and write sentences and paragraphs. And what more can you ask of life? Well, you can ask more, but uh, we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) Well, that's a terrific message to uh, close out. And I really, from the radio community around the world, you have a very special place in our hearts because you've been able to do something for so long so beautifully, and that is connect and be hysterical, and you haven't lost anything off your fastball. So, uh, Garrison, a real honor and a pleasure, my friend, and uh, we'll be reading limericks and thinking of you. Thank you. Golly, I still get goosebumps when I think about all my radio heroes and the fact that I've been able to meet them and chat with them over the years. And no exception here, Garrison Keillor, one of my favorites. And I want to say thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Special thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media and to Ken Carberry and everybody at Chart Production Studios in Boston. Hey, until next time, remember, we're in the business of pure imagination, and I can't think of a better place to be. This is Jordan Rich reminding you to be well so you can do good. Take care.